Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. You got a couple of ideas about how we might fix some of this national conversation, social media uh, you talk about having returning to a rational public. It's hard to fix Congress and it's hard to fix the economy if you can't fix the conversation. How, what are some things we could do that could fix the conversation? Number one is local journalism. It turns out that local papers tended to be much less polarizing because uh, you know, you, you're actually kind of the glue of the community and you're talking about things that aren't particularly partisan in nature. So getting rid of local news sources means that more people turn to cable news and polarization gets worse. And then the biggest problem is social media. And the, the question is, how the heck do you bring back social media? And what I suggest is something big, because uh, uh, I'm a big idea guy. Um, but it's that we should try and get rid of the advertising business model on social media. And the way I suggest doing that is just have the government give everyone money. I'm, I'm a big fan of giving everyone money that essentially just trues up all of our social media uh, advertising um, to a point where you can just opt into ad-free Facebook, YouTube, uh, Twitter, you name it. And then the social media company gets a little bit of money from the U.S. government. And then all of us all of a sudden uh, have better information environment. Um, and, and if you think about it as a difference between something like Netflix and YouTube, uh, where Netflix, there's a subscription fee and there's content, um, but it doesn't have the, the same uh, desire to plunge you down a rabbit hole as YouTube does, because YouTube, it's like, oh, like, you know, we got to try and get you to watch something else. And so that to me is the kind of dramatic shift you would need um, because right now social media is leading us uh, to ruin and mental illness and depression. everyone. Today on the Forward Podcast, a little bit different kind of show. We're sharing with you an episode I recorded with my friend Van Jones for his podcast, Uncommon Ground. We had what felt like a really important conversation, so we wanted to share it here as well. Those of you who supported me on the presidential, remember Van was one of the earliest, most prominent voices saying, gang, gang, on the national stage, he and I have remained friends. We're looking to make common cause. So was excited to be one of the first guests on his new podcast, Uncommon Ground with Van Jones. Hope you enjoy the conversation. Let's find common ground with people. Am I right? Welcome back to Uncommon Ground. I'm Van Jones. 
On this show, we explore what it takes to make meaningful change in such a divided country. And my next guest is somebody who has thought a lot about that very question. It's Andrew Yang. And before I start bragging on him and telling you everything uh, that he's done, I just want to tell you why I love this guy so much. A lot of times I feel trapped between the people who just want to defend the status quo, uh, the kind of establishment types that just want everybody to kind of go away, calm down, be civil, pay your taxes, and basically shut up versus the people who just want to burn everything down, whether on the left or on the right. And I don't agree with either group. I do think that there's something really wrong with our system, with our society. People are being let down. The earth is dying. We aren't solving real problems. At the same time, the idea that, you know, you just, you know, pick somebody to blame a racial group or an income group and just burn it all down. That makes no sense to me either. What we need is a third way out, not people defending the status quo as if nothing's wrong, not the people who want to burn it all down, but people who've got positive ideas. And Andrew Yang is just full of positive ideas, positive solutions. I think he's the best guy in American politics right now. And, you know, uh, he's obviously become something of a household name. Uh, he's an entrepreneur, he's a philanthropist, he's an author. Uh, his new book called Forward, Notes on the Future of Democracy, came out recently. I highly recommend it. Um, but he's best known for his rise in politics. Uh, he ran for president in 2020, one of the most successful uh, Asian American uh, candidates in American history. I guess Kamala Harris would have to be number one. And he ran on a big, big idea, universal basic income, that everybody in the country especially with the rise of the robots, should be guaranteed a basic floor of income that they can use to meet their needs or to start their business. And that idea was nowhere until Andrew Yang put it on the map. And now it's a very much a mainstream idea. Um, he ran for mayor of New York recently. That didn't work out. And now he is leading a new political party called the Forward Party, which is trying to reform the U.S. political and economic systems to try to reduce polarization. And so... If you are looking for ideas and hope and solutions, you need to look no farther than Andrew Yang when we get back. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that private. What's changed? The Internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing, you don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button 
and you get your own protected connection. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S vpn.com yang. Go to expressvpn.com yang to learn more. Well, it is an honor to have you on the Uncommon Ground podcast. Uh, a lot of what I'm trying to do really has been inspired by you. Oh my gosh, man. That, that's Seriously. <laughs> but uh, no, man, just the idea. I mean, you, you kind of came out of nowhere. This kind of like comet of hope. This kind of supernova of solutions. And really, I think, had such a positive impact on the 2020 election. And now you've written a book. I want to get into the book. But really, I mean, you've seen it all now. You were an entrepreneur watching the world go south for working class people. You've been a not-for-profit leader. Now you've run for office, national level, local level. I, you know, you should be depressed uh, <laughs> considering how tough these problems are. And you've seen them all up close. How are you holding up? Thanks for asking, Van. Um the presidential race was a journey that I did try and catalog in the, in the book. And then when that campaign ended, it was like a bit of being one of those cartoon characters who's been like running, running. And then you're like off a cliff and you look around and you're like, oh, <laughs> like, well, what's going on? Uh, and so that was a massive adjustment. And then I ran for mayor and that was an extraordinarily difficult race. Uh, and so coming off of that race, uh, I definitely needed a little bit of time with the family and, and um, some sunshine in the summer. Um, but the ideas I laid out in this book uh, are so needed right now. And so uh, I feel really invigorated by the possibility of getting these ideas out because my journey through the presidential race in particular led me to understand more fully why it feels like we can't get anything mm -hmm. done. Um, and unfortunately, we're being set up. We are being set up to not get much done. And there are all of these people, I feel like, who are losing hope right now. At the end of the day, when what we're going through right now, it's a crisis of the imagination. I think it's a crisis of human heart, human soul. Like things are changing so fast. And I think change is scary for a lot of people, left, right, or otherwise. And when you get scared, you get small. When you get small, you get mean. When you get mean, you start having a self-fulfilling kind of experience where other people start being mean to you. And you can wind up in a civil war in a country if you're not careful. And I think the biggest fear that people have is that they're not going to be able to feed their families. And so people who've got good economic ideas, I think, are really key. And you've got some in the book. Can you just talk a little bit about how you see the economy, what's going wrong, and how we can fix some of it, any of it? The central problem is that we've started to treat the capital E economy as if it's its own goal <laughs> with its own heads. Uh, meanwhile, our quality of life has eroded to 28th in the world by measurements like clean air and clean water, public education, infant mortality, life expectancy, like the basics. Uh, meanwhile, the stock market is gangbusters and everything else. Uh, and so I'm a straightforward thinker where I'm just like, well, you know, if you are trying to, to uh, increase stock market prices, then I guess that's what you're going to get. Like we should be trying to increase people's 
life expectancy and education rates and the quality of the environment. And if you made that the measuring stick and the goal of progress, then all of a sudden, every quarter, you'd have a like, well, we're still terrible at this. And then, you know, your public officials would have a different set of goals. They'd be like, oh, well, you know, 28th, that's pretty terrible. Let's try and get up to 25th. I, I think that that's true. And at the same time, uh, you know, you got some pretty uh, bright answers. You know, the universal basic income idea, which is now well known, but it wasn't before you, is that everybody should get $1,000, period. Um, and it's just your money, you do with it what you want to. That was a crazy idea. But you have this other idea that's kind of, you know, really new and different, which is tax the robots. Why would taxing the robots make a difference? How's that even going to uh, scratch the surface? Most people have never thought about that. More and more of the work that people do is going to be done by technology in the days to come. And our tax system right now is going to do a terrible job of capturing any of that value. Uh, where if you use Google's AI to answer phones, there are 2 million Americans right now that are in call centers. So they pay taxes, uh, most, most of them. And so then you ask, okay, how much is Google going to pay in taxes if its software is doing this? And the answer is next to nothing. You look at the tax rate of these tech companies, they just move it through Ireland or wherever the heck, and we don't see a dime. So we're stuck in the situation where the value is going to be slipping through our fingers more and more unless we actually capture a toll on that. And if we do capture a toll on that, by the way, it could amount to hundreds of billions of dollars, trillions of dollars very, very quickly because the value is so immense. And to me, it points to a freshness of approach that I think you represent. I think that both parties really need. Like what you just said, I don't think anybody could argue with from the left or the right if they thought about it. There's not an automatic constituency for or against that has already been trained by their political media to hate it or like it. And, you know, which really kind of brings me to the other point about your book. You know, you're talking about rewiring the government. I'm very worried about democracy. Me too. I don't like what I'm seeing. It seems to me that we now have, even at the level of voting, you have both sides maybe less and less willing to accept the results of elections. I think you've popped the hood on that and you've got some ideas as well that I think we're talking about. Talk a little bit about this idea of open primaries and ranked choice voting, especially given that you kind of had experience with that in New York and you didn't win that election. So does it change your perspective on it? I mean, how do you, having actually thought about it and argued for it and then participated in it, talk a little bit about this idea of you know, ranked choice voting, which they, which they had in New York. This to me is the recipe, Van. Right now, the approval rate for Congress is 28%, pretty low. People aren't happy. The re-election rate for individual members of Congress is 92%, like almost guaranteed job security. And the there are two main reasons why the, these numbers don't match very well. Number one is that 83% of the district races are safe seats. It's going to be either Democrat or Republican. So if you get to the general, you win. And people can all think about their own district as probably a safe seat. Uh, so then the criteria to get reelected is not somehow doing a great job for your district. It's can you get through a party primary where only the most partisan 11 to 20 percent will vote? Uh, and so that's why you have political figures who don't want to compromise and are willing to make very extreme statements because they're just worried about the most extreme 20 percent in their district. Uh, but one community has actually made this change where now it's open primaries and ranked choice voting. 
And that state, you're not going to believe it, everyone, is Alaska, which last year flipped a switch and said no more party primaries. And then this year, Senator Lisa Murkowski was the only Republican senator to vote to impeach Donald Trump, who's also up for re-election in 22. Her approval rating among Republicans in Alaska right now is 6%, according to, to one poll. So if she was subject to a party primary, she's obviously out of there, which is, which is one reason why you're not seeing many Republicans say a bad word about Trump. But now with open primaries uh, and ranked choice voting, she actually can make her case straight to all Alaskans and try and appeal to the 51% instead of the 10 to 20% at the extreme. So this is the big fix. This is the anti-polarization recipe for the country. And believe it or not, we don't even need Congress to do it. That the way they did in Alaska was through a ballot initiative that citizens led. Uh, we can just do the same in 24 other states that allow for ballot initiatives and then unlock our legislators from this extreme polarization that is unfortunately driving them to the extreme to keep their jobs. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Well, I, I love that idea. I think I don't think we explain to people well enough in the media how these incentives work right now. It really doesn't matter, you know, if literally you know you meet ten people and two of them can fire you, and the other eight aren't going to participate or can't because there's another party. When I say 2% can fire you, what do I mean? I mean, it's a very small number of people in that supermarket who are going to vote in your primary. If you're a Democrat, you cannot vote in a Republican primary. If you're a Republican, you cannot vote in a Democratic primary. So you automatically cut half the people out just for the primary election. And then most people don't vote in primary elections. So you have another chop. So it, you wind up, you say, why do these people say this crazy stuff? Why do they seem so extreme? Because they're talking to weirdos. They're talking to They're weirdos. Often talking to weirdos, yes. <laughs> and but if you're a weirdo, if a weirdo is your boss, if your weirdo can fire you, then you kind of have to talk a little weird. It's not that we don't have good people in elective office. We do. It's that the incentives to act terribly are so overwhelming that we require superhuman, almost suicidal levels of courage to do the right thing, even 
part of the time. And so I love your fixes because they do tend to go to the core of the matter. You know, I am very concerned about where we're headed in the following respect. There really should be a grand bargain now on voting, just voting itself. The Republicans keep saying we we want to cheat. I'm a Democrat. They say we want to cheat. And we say we don't want to cheat. And then we say, you guys want to gerrymander and suppress our vote on racial grounds primarily. And they say, no, we don't. And it turns out you can do this for a very long time and nothing improves except more and more division, cynicism, hostility, anger, and possibly in 2022 and 2024 election results that millions of people won't accept. I mean, it's all this kind of thing. So I feel, I mean, I'm encouraged by your courage and putting ideas out, but do I, am I crazy? If you are concerned, Van, you are right to be deeply concerned. I'm also deeply concerned. Um, so one of the ways I think about it now is that Democrats have become uh, the party of institutionalists and Republicans have become the anti-institutional party. And one measuring stick I throw in the book that I think speaks to this is that 69% of Democrats have a high trust in the media. And if you look at Republicans, you're down to 15%. So, so then if you go to, to Republicans say, hey, lost that election, and be like, I don't believe your vote. And so now we, we have these divergent versions of reality, and it's very, very difficult to hammer something out. Uh, we should be very, very concerned. And one of the, the deficiencies I'm seeing is that if you were to build a democracy and you would want it to be resilient to authoritarianism, let's say, you would definitely have a system that looks nothing like ours. Like ours is actually very, very vulnerable to authoritarianism because you have two major parties. And if one of them succumbs to an authoritarian leader, all of a sudden everyone's political incentives are to be in line with that leader. And you don't have much in the way of additional safeguards. If you were to want to build a more resilient system, what you would do is you'd be like the UK. The UK has five parties. Sweden has eight parties. Netherlands has 18 parties. And then if one of those parties that comes to bad leadership, then everyone's like, oh, that party over there seems like a little uh, off the rails, but then that's not existential. But the, but the problem is that you have this anti-institutional impulse that's now uh, essentially in command of one of the two major parties. And then the other major party, the Democrats, uh, have been put in this role where they're defending these institutions that, oh, by the way, some people have some serious problems with and and like aren't really delivering right. in um, the ways that some, some people will hope or some people would expect it to. And so the, the Democrats are being placed in a very tough spot in terms of the argument they have to make. It's like, no, no, it is working. It is working. And more and more people are like, is it working? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's not. You know, when I was a fellow at the Center for American Progress back in ancient history now, Tony Blair came by to talk to us and you know, he predicted this. Uh, he said, you know, the right wing comes on so strong that you find yourself just trying to defend the whole society against them and defend all the institutions against them. And you wind up sounding like an apologist for the status quo because, you know, you know, they're saying the stuff they're saying is so extreme. They're coming on so hard. They position you as a defender of the status quo and you then become a weapon in their arsenal <laughs> because, you know, you're now a part of the problem. I mean, one of the things I like about you and I like about your, your book and, and both your campaigns is that you really were positioning yourself as the reformer, that you were coming on, you know, to me, like you're our most promising positive populist. You're a populist in that you're concerned about ordinary people. You're concerned about the plight of, of working folks and regular people. But rather than being a negative populist where you come on and say, I'm going to blame the immigrants or I'm going to blame the billionaires, or, I'm going to blame this group, I'm going to blame that group. You come on as a positive populist with ideas that can help everybody, especially 
working people. And I think, you know, that is really needs to be encouraged more because otherwise you wind up either having to blame a whole bunch of people who, you know, may or may not be at fault just because you want, you don't want to seem like you're a part of the system or you, you know, you wind up defending stuff that sucks. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Uh, I actually took your words to heart on this, Van, because you, you talked to me about how I'm like the this positive populist figure. It meant a lot to me. And I hope to be this animating force around a degree of optimism and solutions orientation and universality that is very, very absent from our politics right now. Our politics is very disheartening and depressing. So I I hope to be someone who can positively channel some of this energy um, and then keep us from this, this binary clash that is going to doom us really. And, you know, part of the reason I think we feel bad is because social media takes all this stuff and makes it feel even worse. You got a couple of ideas about how we might fix some of this national conversation, social media. Uh, you talk about having returning to a rational public. It's hard to fix Congress and it's hard to fix the economy if you can't fix the conversation. How, what are some things we could do that could fix the conversation? Number one is local journalism. It turns out that local papers tended to be much less polarizing because uh, you know, you, you're actually kind of the glue of the community and you're talking about things that aren't particularly partisan in nature. So getting rid of local news sources means that more people turn to cable news and polarization gets worse. And then the biggest problem is social media. And the, the question is, how the heck do you bring back social media? And what I suggest is something big because uh, I'm a big idea guy. Um, but it's that we should try and get rid of the advertising business model on social media. And the way I suggest doing that is just have the government give everyone money. I'm, I'm a big fan of giving everyone money that essentially just trues up all of our social media uh, advertising um, to a point where you can just opt into ad free Facebook, YouTube, uh, Twitter, you name it. And then the social media company gets a little bit of money from the U.S. government. And then all of us all of a sudden uh, have better information environment. Um, and if you think about it, it's a difference between something like Netflix and YouTube, uh, where Netflix, there's a subscription fee and there's content, um, but it doesn't have the, the same uh, desire to plunge you down a rabbit hole as YouTube does, because YouTube, it's like, oh, like, you know, we got to try and get you to watch something else. And so that, to me, is the kind of dramatic shift you would need, um, because right now, social media is leading us uh, to ruin and mental illness and depression. Yeah. 
Look, I, I, I'm very interested in trying to figure this out as a, as a part of the, the media. I do feel like we're somehow um, accelerating the bad stuff and decelerating the good stuff. And, and the worst part about it is it doesn't seem to be anybody's intention to do that. I, you know, I know a lot of people in Hollywood and Silicon Valley, and whatever, nobody seems to have the intention of creating this downward spiral, but here we are. Yeah, and this is something too that I want people to understand is that right now there are a lot of folks in American life who are like, oh, there's someone in there pulling the strings and like, you know, making things. Yeah, yeah, we wish. Um, we go find them and <laughs> give them a good talking to. Yeah, uh, mo- most, most of this, and this is actually in some ways more dangerous, darker. Um, but, yeah. but most of it is that you have reasonable people in systems of very, very messed up incentives, and then it's leading us to ruin. Um, mm-hmm. And so that that to me, again, has to be the core mission is to get our heads back and up and say, wait a minute, I do have these feelings and affiliations, but right now my tribalism is getting ginned up to a level that might not be helping me or the country. Uh, and uh, how am I actually going to try and uh, line up the incentives with the common good. Um, so I have big ideas in terms of government, um, but we're at a dangerous time because if reasonable people do rational things, we're, we're sunk. But look, I'm, I'm glad that, I'm glad that you say that because I do think that, you know, the conspiracy um, chic now on both the left and the right is getting in the way because it's much worse than that. If there were you know, 12 people in a room someplace twirling their mustaches, we could go find them and just, you know, put better people in there or something like that. Everybody who's trapped in these systems believes, well, you know, we're one vote away or one small tweak away or, you know, one bill away or one product launch away from having a better outcome. It's just not true. Uh, the, the paradigm that we have been operating inside of has divorced itself from the, the, the functional reality of the modern day economy, modern day environment, modern day demographics, and people are just in there doing what makes sense to them without really anybody uh, flying the plane anymore. So I think it requires depolarization. I think it requires us to come together. I think it requires us to think deeply, to care a lot, uh, and to put forward bold ideas, which is what you're doing. And I think it's, it's really, really key. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Let me just say, you know, you're the first Asian American national politician. I remember in 84 and 88 uh, when Reverend Jackson ran for president, Reverend Jesse Jackson. It changed my life. It's sort of a, a lost chapter now in American history. People don't remember or refer back. It was during like, you know, Reagan Bush era conservatism was really on the rise. We had very few voices. And the only time I saw my father cry was watching him watch Reverend Jackson address a Democratic convention in 84. Just the idea that an African-American man could stand in front of the nation and have his own ideas and have his own solutions and have his own critique 
um, and make it to that level. And um, it was 20 years, 88 was 20 years after Dr. King was killed and 20 years before Obama was elected. So it was really kind of this 40 years in the wilderness for us as black folks, 68, King is killed, 2008, Obama's elected. In that 40 year wilderness, Reverend Jackson really was like a center post for us. So I know the importance of someone who looked like me standing before the country. You have arisen as this incredible figure at a moment where there's hate crimes against Asian Americans, uh, where the president of the United States was uh, saying things that were inflammatory uh, with regard to the virus. And it's kind of like, it seems like the best and the worst of all possible worlds for you uh, as a figure. I just wanted you to speak about that as, uh, as somebody who has become a historic figure in a very difficult time. Thanks, Van. Uh, I confess to some people who are close to me that one of my goals in running for president was to get on that debate stage because I thought it would be immensely meaningful for Asian Americans to see one of us on that debate stage. And when I came off that debate stage in Miami that first time and I saw the image, even I was like, well, who's the Asian guy? <laughs> I was really, I was like, I, was like I, was, I had to do a double take. Um, so that meant an immense amount to me and to a lot of people um, who I met on the trail, where when I was in Iowa or New Hampshire, wherever, that there'd be Asian families who'd bring their kids up and have a picture with me and say, look, you know, oh, you can do anything. Uh, and uh, I'm so proud of that. I, I certainly feel a responsibility as one of the more visible Asian Americans in the country to try and do things that can help bring us together. And I say to Asian American communities uh, that that can be something that we actually try and lead on is trying to bring this country back together. And you'd think Asian Americans would be kind of like an unlikely group to lead on that, honestly. But but, but, but what I say to them is like, look, Mm-hmm. No, I mean, we're, we're, um, yeah. we're kind of this um, like group in the middle uh, is what yeah. I described, like the, the Asian Americans. And Ronnie Chang, the comedian, talked about how it's like, you know, we're, we're here to navigate uh, America through its black-white conflict. <laughs> Which is, yeah. He's obviously a comedian. Yeah, but, you get it. Uh, That's good. Yeah, but, but I, I, uh, I say to Asian American groups, it's, it's that, look, like, this country really needs us and can use us and we have to do yeah. everything we can. Yeah. Well, look, I, um, uh, you, you're somebody, you're definitely doing all you can. And uh, it's all you can ask. Uh, my grandmother used to say, do your best. Angels can do no more. And you know, people who I think see folks like you or me on TV, the public eye, they may have some idea that it's not all cake and ice cream. It's really not. It's really tough. And therefore you have every excuse to be mean, to be grumpy, uh, to dismiss people, to be crappy. And I've seen you talk to just the, I mean, just walking down the street with you and just any person, you treat them with so much respect, so much dignity and so much curiosity. I mean, I think one of the reasons why, you know, why you're so good at what you do is not just because you're a great presenter, you're also just a great listener and a great person. And I'm just so honored to have you on this podcast. I'm honored to be a part of your life, you know? Uh, I think I think we can save democracy, but it'll, it'll take the kind of leadership that you've been showing. And uh, and I appreciate you, brother. Love you, Van Jones. And I, I genuinely just like people. I think that's one reason why you and I get along that, you know, we have mm-hmm. a, an actual interest in human beings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, true. It's true. I encourage everybody to get the book. Uh, it's called Forward Notes on the Future of Our Democracy. It's by Andrew Yang. Uh, you got a little tiny taste on this podcast, but you should get the whole gulp that he's offering up. Appreciate you, brother. Thanks, man. Great being here.